Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. And together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Because of the topics that we cover, some of our episodes might get heavy, and some topics might seem divisive. But we believe that even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope that those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way that it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and for future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. been listening along to the previous couple of episodes, you know that this session aims to explore the ideas of tolerance versus intolerance and how the two collide. I'm just going to warn you up front, you're likely to leave this one with more questions than answers, such as the ironic nature of philosophy. And in our quest to find answers, we often just generate more questions. This one in particular gets pretty deep into the theory behind Uh, free speech and what makes speech valuable and why the First Amendment exists and the limitations of that. So I think (laughs) this one's actually going to be in multiple parts. So this is part one. We're going to focus on um, more about like the definition of tolerance, where that comes from. And uh, we're going to focus pretty hard on the First Amendment and the limitations of the First Amendment and basically build out the foundation so that when we get to talking about tolerance versus intolerance, uh, these foundational concepts are, are already in hand. Um, it's, I know that the title, what we have said we're talking about isn't the first amendment. We're talking about tolerance versus intolerance, but the two are so like inexorably intertwined that you really can't talk about one without talking about the other. Yeah, as we were researching and writing, we, we pretty much found that everybody who is trying to make arguments, um, especially in America, on tolerance versus intolerance, all of that centers around speech and, and how we value what is protected speech and, and who gets to say what and when and where they get to say it. And so we knew that we had to take a little bit deeper dive into the First Amendment before we could really get into the conversation on this paradox. The ongoing conversation around Antifa and the varied forces of fascism has spawned many debates, or really arguments. By the way, Antifa versus the varied forces of fascism is now my new band's name. Solid. Solid. Because, uh, yeah, I like it. Uh, at the heart of all of this debate is this question, how can a tolerant society claim to be tolerant when it tries to shut down intolerant ideas. 
Now, you have probably heard it expressed somewhat more succinctly, but less compellingly as so much for the tolerant left or whatever group claims to be tolerant, so much for that when they display even the slightest inkling of intolerance. If the political left, that is the Democratic Party featuring the progressives, which is my second band name, is this supposed pillar of tolerance, are they not being hypocritical when they call for neo-Nazis and other fascists to be silenced and ultimately barred from participating in society? There's a quick side note, a trap that we have sort of fallen into and that I have seen other people fallen into is referring to Antifa and the left or Democrats sort of interchangeably. Um, there is a lot of overlap there, but Antifa isn't strictly a democratic movement, although the two are linked. Um, there's actually a pretty broad range of political ideology represented there. It tends to be far left, right. but there's plenty of Antifa affiliated ire directed towards the Democrats and neoliberals at all. Just wanted to say that since I don't think we quite hit that in our last two episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Frankly, this type of questioning, this this sort of posturing is used more often as a, uh, a political cudgel to call out perceived hypocrisy. It, but assuming that this sort of uh, objection is being raised in good faith, this sort of, well, what about tolerance? You said you were tolerant. Assuming that's being brought up legitimately, it leads to a very old, very interesting paradox that we have talked about several times already. This tolerant society. If a tolerant society tolerates intolerance, then the tolerant society will eventually be overthrown by the intolerant and fail. So that's the paradox. Therefore, any tolerant society that wishes to prosper must not tolerate intolerance. But in doing so, the tolerant society is now, by definition, intolerant. The Antifa movement in all of its forms throughout history is an embodiment of the paradox that a tolerant society must not, and indeed cannot, accept intolerance if that society is going to survive. That's kind of a tongue twister. Say that five times fast. <laughs> so how do we reconcile the two? Is there any way for a tolerant society to safely allow intolerant speech? Or are we forced to accept that tolerance will forever have an asterisk by it? Because tolerance will only apply to ideas deemed safe to tolerate. Turns out there's a super simple answer to that question, right? Done. Always. <laughs> I wish. I just want to say that like one time, you know, <laughs> even if it's totally fake. It's a paradox. Obviously, it's a paradox. Simple doesn't even begin to start the, the conversation, and it certainly doesn't exist anywhere in this conversation. And surprise, this, this all got way bigger than we thought. So as I mentioned, we're already splitting this one in, in half. So this week, we're giving you that, that basic background on tolerance, a quick dive into the First Amendment as a foundational argument for and and sometimes against tolerance and a quick peek into what counts as intolerant speech. Okay, before we can go any further with this conversation, because it's a word that we're going to say probably 9,000 times in the next hour, we have to establish a baseline definition for tolerance, especially in the context of this episode. Colloquially, it means a ton of other things. Um, but for the purposes of this episode, we need to let you know what we're talking about when we say the word tolerant or intolerant, conversely. 
Barbara Passamonic, in her 2004 article, The Paradoxes of Tolerance, explains the concept in a way that's really actually very relevant for our discussion here. She says, Tolerance is generally defined as a social virtue and a political principle that allows for the peaceful coexistence of individuals and groups that hold different views and practice different ways of life within the same society. It's pretty simple. Um, but then she outlines two specific conditions that have to be fulfilled for tolerance, that specific word, to be the appropriate context for a situation or a conversation. The first one is that we have to be aware of views or behaviors that we do not approve of. That's fundamental to tolerance. We cannot be definitionally tolerant of things that we don't oppose because tolerance is choosing to coexist with things we don't necessarily approve of. And then the second thing is that we have to be able to counteract our disapproval. We have to come to a place where we can accept the thing that we don't approve of and that it exists, but not actually seek to overcome it or change it. Only then do we count as truly tolerant of that perspective or behavior. So keep that in mind as we continue through this discussion of tolerance versus intolerance, because these conditions lay that groundwork for the whole conversation. Also, I think it's helpful to note that Passamonic also discusses two degrees of tolerance, weak tolerance and strong tolerance. Weak tolerance, she says, allows us to put aside our disapproval of ideas or behaviors because of indifference, because we feel superior to someone else, or even just because we want to directly avoid conflict. And then strong tolerance comes from a respect for, again, not approval of, diverse views or behaviors. We're able to respect that other people believe or act differently than us without seeking to change them, even if we don't approve of the beliefs or actions. Right. This leads to an interesting sort of uh, dichotomy, I think. There's this really strong urge to view tolerance and intolerance as opposites, but they're not actually opposite because of what they mean specifically. So tolerance means that you are aware of that other idea. You don't necessarily approve of it, but you're aware of it and you are allowing it to continue existing in your space. Mm -hmm. Intolerance by definition means you don't approve of the other thing that is being said and you will not allow it to continue in your, in your uh, sphere. So if you are intolerant of something, that other thing, that idea cannot continue to exist around you. Right. So you, an, an, an intolerant mindset is not like the evil twin of tolerance, right? It is an active aggressor against anything that it disagrees with. Right. I, it, I just want to highlight that because it's easy to be like, it's easy to think, that somebody who doesn't approve of an idea is intolerant of that right. idea. But that's not true. Like, I don't have to approve of an idea. I don't have to, to support that idea to tolerate that idea. Yeah, exactly. I can allow it to continue. There's this... But if I... Oh, sorry. Keep going. Yeah. I was just going to say, if I actively work against that idea, that's when it becomes intolerant. Yeah. There's this... Um, there's this grand conflation, especially on the internet, that approval or acceptance 
is equal to tolerance. And if you don't approve or you don't accept something, you are intolerant. Um, and so it's really important to separate that out from the definition that you can absolutely not approve of someone's something, belief, action, behavior, hair color, whatever. Um, but you do not become definitionally intolerant, like you said, until you seek to work against them and disallow that from continuing. Right. So tolerance then allows room for disagreement within a society. It allows room for discussion and allows room for discovery. Intolerance by its very nature does not allow that room. An intolerant society is very homogeneic in its ideas and its beliefs and the things that it does. Actually, that leads nicely into another one of our root questions here. Why do we put such a value on tolerance in the first place? We could get really, really, really deep in the weeds here, but essentially it boils down to how you value difference within a society. There are several arguments about the value of tolerance in a society, and Lee Bollinger covers them in his book, The Tolerant Society, Freedom of Speech and Extremist Speech in America. Among those ideas is the idea that tolerance allows various ideas and ways of thinking to flourish in a society, preventing the stagnation of that society. This relies on the assumption that homogeneity within a society is ultimately detrimental to that society, and that a marketplace of ideas will ultimately lead to the greatest possibility of arriving at the best practices for that particular society. Without tolerance, there can be no diversity in values, and diversity of values is enriching to all. A little more esoterically than even that, tolerance is important in a society if that society truly values speech. And this is where the First Amendment starts coming into the conversation. As a society, we have all agreed that speech itself is inherently valuable. That is, speech is valuable because we have agreed that it is valuable. It sounds redundant, but think of it like diamonds. Diamonds are only as valuable as they are because we, as a society, have agreed that they are, in fact, that valuable. There's actually very little outside factor that drives the value of diamonds. They're not rare. They're not hard to come by. We can manufacture them. If it were any other thing, we would say that it is not that valuable. Even in industrial application, it's, it's not something that is difficult to acquire. However, we have culturally agreed that they occupy this position of value that they do. And that same logic applies to valuing speech. It needs no further or other justification. It is valuable because we say it is. Because we all agree that speech is valuable, we must therefore exercise tolerance, especially when it comes to speech, or else we are not valuing speech. We value tolerance because we value free speech. It's like an Ouroboros of logic. Now, there are... There are two schools of thought that develop out of tolerance with relation to speech, the classical model of free speech and the fortress model of free speech. And these are all outlined in Lee Bollinger's book, The Tolerant Society, Freedom of Speech and Extremist Speech in America. This was written, that book was written in 1987, by the way. This is far from a new topic. And yeah. I mean, it was an old topic in 1987. So 
we'll cover what these two ideas, that classical model and that fortress model mean pretty quickly here. The, the classical model of free speech, the classical model of free speech says that speech serves a critical function in allowing democratic self-governance. Therefore, all speech must be protected because it serves the collective interests of a self-governing society. So critically, the, the classical model makes the classical model makes the assumption that a given society entirely comprises rational, equal, and fully participating citizens who take their civic duties seriously. As you may have noticed from that definition, the classical model has quite an optimistic view of how hu of humans and, and how they behave. So in contrast to that, the fortress theory is a little more realistic in that it assumes that humans are inherently full of self-doubt and decisions are made and evaluated relative to multiple factors. So this model asserts that no individual can ever be certain about their idea. Whatever it is they believe, they can never be certain that it is absolutely the truth because no idea can be said to be definitively right. Therefore, no idea can be said to be definitively wrong either. Because of this, free speech is necessary to discover and preserve truth. The logic is pretty complicated, but this basically is because of the idea that an individual is more likely to be wrong in any given belief that they espouse. So <laughs> allow everybody to talk and you are more likely to arrive at an overall correct conclusion. So that's really, for me, I know if I were listening to this, I'd be like, what did he just say? <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to give you an image really quick to help understand this. The classical model, imagine a town hall meeting where everybody in a, a neighborhood, for example, comes together, everybody knows each other, everybody is very invested in making sure that whatever you have gathered to do, whatever decision you have gathered to make, um, works for the most people. And so in the classical model, these people in this town hall, they are talking, they are making compelling arguments. Even if those arguments are extreme, they are presenting them in good faith. They truly believe them. They're not trying to, to, to get the other person. You know, they are truly, they truly believe that their idea is the right idea and everybody should jump on with it. So they have this discussion and then everybody reaches a conclusion about the proper way to go because everybody is thinking clearly. Everybody has equal power. Everybody is a fully participating citizen and takes their responsibilities very seriously. And through that method, you get the best idea. The fortress model, on the other hand, is more like a... Um, like a mosh pit of ideas. <laughs> that's not exactly, that's not really right because mosh pits can be pretty cool and the people in them can be pretty cool. Um, but imagine if you will, it's, it's a, it's an arena of competing ideas and you are trying to get the most support for your idea, but any idea out there is equally valid as yours. So anybody can throw their hat into the ring. So in the town hall, you're basically assuming that you're coming from a place of certainty you know, everybody is, is fairly certain that their idea is right. That's the classical model. And in the fortress theory, 
it's more uncertain. You don't know that everybody is right. And through the process of elimination, you, you, you achieve a more correct idea. We are trying to condense a very complicated topic here <laughs> to, keep it, to keep it in a window. But that is the best I can, I can do right now. So what's interesting about these two theories is that they are literally opposite when it comes to why they believe free speech is necessary and, and how free speech begets tolerance. In the classical theory, free speech is necessary for citizens to make informed decisions. And these outlying ideas, extremist ideas, are tolerated because of the certainty the public has of good faith, that, that all the citizens are represented and take their role seriously. They have faith in the democratic process, and therefore that faith means that the actors within the process can tolerate extreme ideas because they know the less extreme, more rational decisions will be made through the process. And then the fortress theory essentially says the exact opposite. A society has to tolerate free speech because we are uncertain. We do not know that our ideas are right, and most ideas are, and beliefs are going to be wrong anyway. So therefore, because we cannot say that any given idea is absolutely wrong, we must listen to all ideas in order to discover the truth. Now, this isn't, this isn't to say that all ideas are equal in discovering the truth. So certain ideas will carry more merit than other ideas. It is simply to illustrate that it is impossible to say that one idea is definitively more correct than another. So therefore, we have to allow the radical idea to be presented because it is just as likely that the reasons given to suppress any given argument are just as wrong as the argument they are trying to suppress. But due to that uncertainty, due to, in the model, not being able to know whether or not one idea is right or wrong versus another one, the likelihood of censoring a good idea right along with a bad idea is very high. So if you start censoring stuff, you might start censoring the good ideas that will lead to good societal progress along with the bad ideas that will damage societal progress. Philosophy's weird, guys. I don't know what to tell you. Like... <laughs> So this is all a very long-winded road to go down because, especially because, again, we're not really talking about speech and its inherent value directly, but because the issue of freedom of speech is at the crux of this discussion, we have to really get down to where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line on what speech is okay and what is too far? Where do we draw the line on what action is okay and what action is not okay? That is ultimately where tolerance comes down to. Where do we draw the line on what idea I can allow to continue on unchallenged or at least continue on with only challenge and not censorship? And where do I have to start censoring ideas and vehemently protesting them? That's what this boils down to. So here on, we're probably going to be referencing these ideas of speech because we're going to get into the First Amendment. So we needed to set the groundwork for why we have speech and why we have <laughs> ideas about where the First Amendment comes from. Yeah. I hope that that made some sort of sense. It made some sense. It did. It made some sense. Um, and it also, no, it's, it also, um, like, the, the, the comparing and contrasting of the classical model and the fortress model sounds a lot to me like how the founding fathers viewed um, how our government would work, 
right? They expected that the United States government and this constitution that they built would be executed by people who were fully engaged and fully involved in the process and who had everyone's best interest in mind and really wanted to work together. Um, but really what we ended up with is that fortress model where everyone's afraid to do everything because nobody knows what's right. But then also everyone really wants to do their own thing because they're pretty sure they're right. And it, it that's just, it's such a, a good analogy for how we find ourselves now operating in this country too. Um, yeah. The, the classical model is you, very much the ideal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the fortress model is more like the, well, well so this is how it's actually happening. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and, and that's no more like that is so relevant as we get into this conversation of the first amendment to the United States constitution. I mean, especially most primarily in America, this right to speech, what we call the First Amendment, is used as a sword and a shield almost daily in our discourse. Um, it got used when we were talking about masks. It got used when we were talking about protests. It gets used when we're talking about crappy memes on the internet um, and Pepe the Frog. Like, we get, we throw out this, this blanket almost daily as we talk. It's one of the most critical aspects of our society. And and I rightly so, I think. Um, but it's kind of funny then that so many people don't seem to know what the First Amendment actually is and, well, what it isn't. Parties on both sides of this tolerance of intolerance debate tend to hinge crucial parts of their arguments on the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. This really short piece of text is deeply embedded in our perspective, but its application is just really misunderstood. So, for good measure, we're going to give it a read together. The First Amendment of the United States Constitution reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's it. That's the whole thing. And just from that simple reading, we can see that the reliance of so many people's arguments about tolerance and a whole host of other things on this piece of text perhaps belies a misplaced foundation. But before we start getting into constitutional interpretation, I don't think that we need to tell you that we are not experts on the United States Constitution. So we will be taking a lot of this at face value, especially in the specific context of discussing the balance between tolerance and intolerance in society, um, and also research, because that's what we do here. So we can move on to some analysis at this point. The First Amendment tells us a few things pretty clearly. Number one, Congress shall make no laws regarding the issues addressed in the amendment. That phrase refers very specifically to the creation of federal law through the legislative branch of government. It's a thing that Congress shallant do. <laughs> I can make contractions out of antiquated language. Why not? Sure. Shallant. Shallant. And then number two, those protected behaviors under the amendment are the practice of religion, speech, the operation of the press, the right to assembly, and the right to petition the government itself. That's literally all that that amendment tells us specifically. Right. But if we put it all together, we have a document that forces the government itself to be tolerant of individuals. And if, 
If we put it all together, we essentially have a document that forces the government to be tolerant of individuals' views and behaviors in some specific areas. But what it doesn't do is mandate that private individuals, or even states, respect those same principles. And there are layers. Layers and limitations even to those rights expressed in the amendment itself. The first layer that we have to peel back is exactly what counts as speech. Like many, many aspects of the Constitution that we've discussed here on this podcast, what the founding document of our great union covers as speech is defined by the Supreme Court of the United States, hereafter referred to as SCOTUS, just because I can. <laughs> I just really love, I don't know why, it just makes me happy. I mean, it's fun to say SCOTUS. It, I, it is. I'm, I'm with you. So when it comes to the First Amendment, we can automatically include the most traditional forms of speech, those words that are spoken and words that are written. And then SCOTUS also tends to include actions it considers to be expressive, things people do as an expression of their thoughts and beliefs, etc. Um, there is actually a standard that is laid out for determining what counts as this expressive conduct, and that standard is the Spence test, which comes from a Supreme Court case. Shocker. I know, right? We're not going to get into the details yeah. of the case because it doesn't actually matter. What matters is the standard. And the standard says that in order for an action to be considered expressive in a way that warrants First Amendment protection, a person's actions must first show an intent to convey a particularized message. There has to be something they're trying to say that is reflective of these kind of protected um, views and beliefs. And then number two... Mm -hmm there has to be a reasonable likelihood that that message would be understood. Um, <laughs> you got to say something and there's going to be a pretty good chance that people are going to understand what you're trying to say. <laughs> oh, okay. I get it. Yeah. Right. It's really hard to, to, <laughs> you can't just put modern art out on the street and call it free speech without some sort of explanation. Right. What is being said here? I don't know. Right. So. Um, Oh, man, that, that would probably be a deep dive modern artist a speech. Anyway, we're not going to do that, though. You can go do that one for yourself. No. Yes. And then, of course, there is a caveat here as well inside of these layers. Inside of this onion, we have a nice big caveat. Um, not all expressive conduct is completely protected. In some cases, those actions can be broken down into protected and not protected parts. And the not protected parts can actually be restricted or prohibited. For example, the First Amendment protects our rights to peaceably assemble in protest. But the Supreme Court has upheld restrictions on that expressive behavior, including restricting the placement of signs on government property, barring late night or early morning demonstrations. We saw a lot of conversation about this over the summer with, um, with localities and states putting limits on and curfews on protesters. Yeah. Um, or even imposing noise limits. These are generally referred to as time, place, manner restrictions on this kind of protected speech. And so to determine the extent to which these otherwise protected behaviors can be limited, we again apply a set of testing standards. Lists on lists on checklists, guys. First, the regulations placed on the speech or the action have to be content neutral. That means that they would have to reply equally regardless of the message being conveyed. You couldn't say that people um, holding Black Lives Matter signs were allowed to be out as late as they wanted 
Whereas people holding um, neo-Nazi signs had to be done protesting at six o'clock in the same place. They would have to apply equally regardless of the message being conveyed. Right. Everybody has to go to bed at six. So what? I said everybody has to go to bed at six. Everybody has to go to bed at six. It's bedtime, guys. It's grown-up time now. (laughs) Number two, the regulations must be narrowly tailored to serve a significant government interest. There has to be a compelling reason relevant to the government for the government to restrict the time, place, or the manner of that expressive conduct. And then third, those regulations have to leave open ample alternative channels for communicating the speaker's message. This one actually gets really complicated, especially when you're considering the place factor. Um, the One of the hallmark cases in this was about the Million Youth March. Everybody remembers the Million Man March, but I don't think very many people remember the Million Youth March um, put on by the Nation of Islam where they wanted to march through Harlem because their target audience was specifically young people in Harlem. Um, And the city of New York said, no, but you can march over in this other place. And they said, well, that doesn't really count because our message is crucial to the people of Harlem. It gets complicated. Um, But for the purposes of this conversation, we can pretty much say that this standard is there to ensure that the speaker can reach his or her intended audience, the people that they're supposed to be talking to, in a manner that is affordable and accessible to them. And then, again, we're adding more layers. There are the distinctions between what the Supreme Court has determined to be protected and not protected speech. Layers on layers on layers. So many layers. Generally speaking, generally speaking, any law that applies to particular speech because of the topic discussed or the idea or the message expressed, in order to restrict that speech... Any law that applies to those is unconstitutional. And those laws are subject to a very thorough examination by SCOTUS to determine if the unconstitutional label should stick. Uh, That standard is called strict scrutiny. Um, However, SCOTUS has recognized several categories of speech over the years that may be regulated specifically because of their content. Broadly, these categories are obscenity, defamation, fraud, incitement, fighting words, true threats, speech integral to criminal conduct, and child pornography. Um, Basically, hey, this speech clearly delineated not protected speech. And we'll dive into them really quick. Obscenity... Obscenity doesn't really mean what people think of when they hear obscenity. It's not, it's not swear words and blue language, right? You, if it were, we would not have a Navy. Um, <laughs> what's, <laughs> what's meant here is really any language that either appeals excessively to sex or describes sexual conduct in patently offensive ways and has no serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Oh, that value one. Is, that's the, that's the hang Yeah. Defamation. Yeah. I, I, oh, sorry. Go for it. No, I was just going to say that that part, it's it, a lot of these exceptions are very, very, um, subjective Mm -hmm. it really depends on the observer and the speaker and so when court cases reach the supreme court that are about freedom of speech if you go 
and start reading through the arguments. I mean, if you think this this episode is philosophy heavy, like it's, it's they get dense. They get so dense because you have to somehow prove that something either does or does not have value or that it that is it, it talks excessively about sex which is crazy to me because we have literal entire television stations that are right. about sex so i like how do you prove that a piece of art is excessive right or the, that it's it's literary or artistic value is serious like frivolous yeah. versus serious i remember um doing my undergrad work which is in journalism. And we spent, we just spent so much time in these exceptions and, you know, how it gets determined what is obscene and what is defamatory. And it just, it just gets really super complicated and philosophical. Right. Even with these exceptions, like delineated because so much of it is, is this subjective standard, it's going to get taken to court. Yeah. There's just so many challenges to be made and so many arguments. So yeah. First Amendment cases are hard. They're they're really, they're really hard. There are so many of them and they're just complicated. A second one on the list, defamation. Defamation is basically a false statement or fact about a person. But um, applying this definition so broadly, right, would likely hamper true free speech. So claiming defamation usually requires that you demonstrate a certain level of intent uh, to prove injury. So you can't just say, oh, they lied about me. You have to say they lied about me and it caused me real harm and I can prove it. Um, this, I have so many conversations about this all the time. Defamation and um, especially when you get into like libel and slander, this is one of the things that is actually pretty clear when it comes to this. You can make a mistake in something that you say about somebody. Like you're not going to probably, I mean, you might get sued over a mistake um, but it's not going to be a violation of true speech. It's not going to fall under this exception here. Right. Um, but you can't intentionally say something without um, without a good faith effort to assert its truth or to ascertain its truth. Um, and you can't say things that you know are going to damage other people. Which is why we never talk about anybody on this show. Not joking. <laughs> But I, I mean, it's something that we haven't really been actively thinking about it, but it is one of the reasons that we research so much is because when we do make these statements and especially when we do talk about things like uh, terrorism, and mm -hmm. if we start talking about specific people, you know, we caveat it heavily because we could come under fire for defamation theoretically. Right. It's not like we have a huge, uh, a huge audience right now, but um it's again, you have to make those good faith efforts to not present false statements, um, which if you look at the past four years of <laughs> of press statements and this gets really, really interesting yeah. because there have been some incredibly defamatory statements made mm -hmm. and no follow up, you know, challenge or lawsuit to that. And a lot of people are like, but why? And it's that proving damage yeah. part. It's hard. It's really hard. Actual it's damages. also why Fox had to, um, it's why Fox had to argue in court that Tucker Carlson wasn't a news show. He was an entertainment show and that his, his viewers 
know that what he is saying isn't to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. It's the only defense they had against him being sued for things like defamation because the Fox lawyers know that he is walking a very, very fine line and he could get pushed over that edge. Yeah. So defamation has a lot of broad applications when it comes to entertainment, especially. Yes. Now, fraud, fraud is a little different than defamation um, and mainly anything on here. SCOTUS has determined you can't just you can't just outlaw lying. Right. Because holy crap, (laughs) (laughs) there would be no such thing as free speech. Um, So they have defined lying under very specific instances. So fraud would be speech that purposely deceives the public or a consumer or the consumer. Right. Very specifically, you have to be deceiving people at large and just about anything that deceives people for the purposes of making money Mm -hmm. is going to fall under fraud. That's going to be the the exception to the First Amendment. Incitement may be a standard that is very familiar to you, the American people right now, uh, since the former president, Trump, was just impeached on the grounds of incitement. This is speech that aims to incite or produce imminent lawless action and is likely to do so. So I could say, let's go burn down the courthouse. But if nobody's listening to me or likely to do what I say, then it's still protected speech. But if I have a whole crowd of people around me and I proudly proclaim, let's go burn down the courthouse, then these people are likely to follow me. Then that lawless action um, would not be protected speech. That would be incitement. Right. Very importantly, it just means the speech has to be likely to produce the this a result that is lawless. It doesn't have to be explicitly trying to produce a right, result that's that a is good lawless. Caveat. So if I say, you know, I really wish somebody would do something about Congress, just off the cuff here, <laughs> and then people go down and raid the Capitol building, right. that can meet the definition of incitement. And that's why... That's why the argument was made for his January 6th statements uh, and, and what happened there. So fighting words, the next, the next exception, are those which are likely to provoke the average person to retaliation and thereby cause a breach of the peace. It's a bit of a gray area because SCOTUS has also said that speech cannot be restricted just because it is upsetting or contemptible. So my guess on this is this this exception is going to be a bit amorphous until somebody really, really decides to test it, really decides to challenge that. Because like because of the way this is worded, if I go out and I, you know, start telling your mama jokes to somebody, the average person probably wouldn't want to punch me because of that. Right. But some people might. So. There would be an argument to be made that I hadn't issued fighting words, but there would also be an argument to be made that I had issued fighting words because the average person changes based on the culture and the place and everything. Yeah. So really broad standard. It's going to, I mean, all of these have been thoroughly explored multiple times in court cases. We're giving you a very condensed rundown of them, but there is a lot of, lot of wiggle room in this one. Still. Yeah. A lot of wiggle room. Uh, true threats, now, since we're on the topic of, of these kind of words that are likely to cause a breach of peace, true threats aren't like um, hyperbolic statements. 
of I'm going to bury you or something like that. True threats, which are not protected speech, are threats that are genuine and that really intend to communicate an intent to hurt someone or some group. Um, I'm going to come to your house and burn it down. That is a true threat <laughs> versus yeah. something like, oh, I'm going to get you. Yeah. Uh, I want to punch you. Well, okay. Are, are you going to though? Probably not. Right. True threats. A lot of people, again, trip up on this thinking that they can say something that, that could be construed as a true threat and that it's protected speech because they didn't really mean it. Right. But if the listener believes it, then there's still an argument to be made that you really did make a true threat. If you start marching down the streets screaming, Jews will not replace us, and similar slogans, you might not have directly threatened somebody, right? But the context of what you are doing and saying could be construed to be a true threat. So a reaction to that might not be wrong, this is all very much hyperbolic here, or not hyperbolic, theoretical here. There's a lot of conditions, but true threats, very broad. They don't have to be a statement. They can be actions. They can be a totality of, of circumstances. It doesn't just have to be somebody saying something. That's the point I'm trying to get at. Yeah, and this, this um, conversation around true threats is especially applicable when we're talking about conversations on the internet and um, the tendency of people, because of the perceived anonymity of the internet, to make very explicit and very graphic statements of intent to harm others oh, yeah. um, based on, you know, an Instagram post. Um, but that's where this kind of thing comes in. People make these statements believing that their right to free speech is protected, um, but really, you know, telling somebody that you're going to go to their house and murder their family because they did not vote to... Um, vote not to certify the election results in their particular state does not count as protected speech. It falls under this true right. threats yeah. category. So if you're out there intending to send a terrible, terrible message to someone on the internet who said something that you don't like, you might want to reconsider that. You would. You definitely want to reconsider that. Don't do it. So the next one, this one's so obvious that it kind of feels dumb to, to <laughs> that it has its own exception, but speech integral to criminal conduct I mean, it's right there on the tin, says it right there. It's speech that's used to commit a crime. It's not protected speech. Uh, like if you are talking about how to commit a robbery and then somebody silenced your speech somehow, right. like, and you were like, I have a first amendment right to plan a robbery. Like you don't, you don't, you don't because conspiracy to commit <laughs> the robbery is, is a crime just as much as rob the robbery itself is a crime. So that is not protected speech. Don't plan crimes and then try to claim a First Amendment right to talk about <laughs> yeah, it, guys. It. It's not going to work. Yeah, don't do it. Especially don't do it in a public place. Um, oh, God. Yeah. And then child pornography is another one that, well, it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, it, it, you would think that this would fall under the obscenity exception, but it actually needed some further definition. I, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, and that's partly yeah. because the advertising and sale of child pornography is integral to the underlying criminal conduct of its production. So not only is the production of the content illegal, but even advertising it isn't protected. Thank God. Um, so this <laughs> exception focuses exclusively on the visual depictions, the actual tape, if you will, whereas the obscenity of exception covers the advertisement part. 
um, the written or spoken attempts to sell that tape. They work in conjunction on this one. Yeah. At least we got that one solid. So as this this not insignificant list might imply, the First Amendment and, and really all rights, all rights are not absolute. You, there are exceptions to every right. Um, we're focusing on the First Amendment, but like even your Second Amendment right to own a weapon is not absolute. <laughs> that is a conversation for another time, but it's not. It just isn't. It's it also it, Cue the can of worms. The government <laughs> bring it. It's like I've got the Constitution on my side. The government can restrict rights in the interest of things like public order, safety, and health. So the government may impose a reasonable restriction on public demonstration as long as it's, like we mentioned, not targeting a particular person or a message or a group. There's some, some gray area to limit activities based on public safety, but mere fear or anticipation of violence is not enough to allow the government to broadly ban speech or demonstration activities. And even further... It, it feels like we're beating a dead horse here, but we have to say it again. The First Amendment is limited to the actions of the government. There's no constitutional provision forcing a business to allow you freedom of speech. Now, there are some funny exceptions, like if the company is a contractor for the government. But generally speaking, once you're operating in the private sector, the limits of your First Amendment activity are determined by the company's policy and not the Constitution of the United States. So while you may be perfectly capable of standing in a U.S. park and yelling about how the Democrats are satanic pedophiles, Twitter does not have to allow you to post ad nauseum about it if they don't want to. And once you agree to the terms of service of any given company or you walk through the doors of any business that has all of their signs on it, that is the law of the land, not the United States Constitution. Really figured that would be pretty pretty clear, but it is uh, unfortunately surprising how many people <laughs> don't get that yeah. point. So there's a lot of restriction around other things like heightened security concerns as well. So on the surface, that, that might seem obvious. No well-functioning government would allow a protest in, in like a military weapons depot. It's just, that's a silly example, but like there is a security concern there Let's not let a bunch of people in to just yell, right? Because they don't like the war or something. They can go protest somewhere else, deliver that same message. Um, there's just too much risk there. So likewise, when I was in the United States Secret Service, several of the rules we had in place around national security events, things like a presidential inauguration, were technically limitations of the First Amendment. You know, off the top of my head, at every presidential event open to the public, uh, the Secret Service will likely not allow you to bring signs that are over a certain dimension size. Like, you can't bring massive banners to most events. Um, and we'll limit, or we would limit, counter-protesters to a designated area. You can't just march into the, the event and counter-protest right in front of the stage. It's be, there's just too many security concerns there. So you can protest across the street where your message can still be seen, where you can still get coverage, where the intended target is still going to hear your message, but you just can't do it right in front of like the speaker stage. 
I think that's fair. Right. I mean, our whole point in having this conversation is to reinforce that as a society, we all have a bit of a mental schism when we talk about our rights. On the one hand, there's this pervasive cultural pride in the First Amendment, and everyone knows that you're allowed to say whatever you want. But there's also an unconscious acceptance of certain limitations to the First Amendment because we all understand that unfettered rights would ultimately lead to chaos. There's always a trade-off. You have to give up some portion of your liberty in order to maintain a functioning society. But we don't always want to think about it that way. Of course not. The trick, the trick, of course, is balancing the freedoms we sacrifice with the security we gain. And this is where things get very, very muddy in this conversation. We mentioned earlier that incitement is not a protected form of speech. You might be familiar with the phrase, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. This is why. Such an action would be likely to cause a panic, which could lead to lawless action. Um, that could be fistfights, which would be assault, right? As people scramble to get out of the theater first, for example. But it could also be something like manslaughter. Like you could be directly responsible for a lawless action by saying something. Um, the best example of this is in 1913, residents of Calumet, Michigan, held a Christmas party for the children of copper miners on strike. Hundreds of people were gathered on the second floor of Italian Hall when an unidentified perpetrator yelled fire. All of those people ran for the exit. A stampede ensued, and in the stampede, 73 people died. And most of those people were children. So that is sort of... <laughs> Sorry, I just made myself really sad because I, I just thought about it. I'd never yeah, heard that matter. story before. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people have. It's, huh. um, the deliberation over whether or not speech that could lead to danger like this, that could lead to somebody dying, um, really led to this standard of clear and present danger. So if the words being spoken are used in such a way or circumstance... Uh, such as to cause a clear and present danger, then those words are likely not protected speech. And so we come to the conundrum of intolerant or hate speech. Hate speech technically has no legal definition in the United States, and SCOTUS has regularly ruled that almost everything that qualifies as hate speech in other countries is protected free speech under the First Amendment. Researcher Michelle Rosenfeld summed it up really well saying, in the Western European democracies that adhere to the principle of freedom of speech, all heed the warning of the paradox of tolerance and do not afford legal protection to extremist speech. In the Western European democracies, the speech of racists, communists, fascists, and Nazis has been successfully outlawed. In the United States, by contrast, the First Amendment right to freedom of speech has been interpreted to encompass extremist speech. Indeed, the celebrated Skokie March litigation showed that the First Amendment operates as an effective shield even against intense and well-publicized indignation. And this essentially is the foundation for the discussion about whether or not we must tolerate hate speech in the United States. Does shutting down intolerance make us intolerant? Is it an unsolvable conundrum? How are we possibly going to solve this? Well, that's going to be our focus next week. So we do hope you all come back for part two of this discussion. 
I will say really quick, Skokie incident, we did not talk about it, but essentially a bunch of Nazis wanted to march through a Jewish neighborhood in the village of Skokie, uh, which I believe is in Illinois. Yeah, it's a suburb of Chicago. And uh, yeah, and uh, there was a lot of dust up about that really, really interesting trial because the ACLU actually ended up defending the Nazis in this one. It's not a sentence that most people think they would ever hear. I know. Very strange. Uh, they also, it was a Jewish lawyer with the ACLU defending the Nazis. Okay. We're going to, we'll um, post um, some more, uh, some more about this because it actually is a really um, a really relevant conversation to what we're talking about this week and what we're going to talk about next week. So we'll we'll definitely yeah, on the social media share some more yeah. references to this story. If people want to find that story on our social media, Robin, how do they get there? Let me tell you, we are Fireside Breakdowns on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you search those words, you will find us there. We are not on the TikTok. We will never be on the TikTok. We're too old for that business. Also, if you wanted to, after you sought us out on the social medias or after listening to this episode, leave us a review, which would mean the world to us. You could do that in so many different ways. On our social media platforms, we do have a link to a handy dandy tool that will allow you to leave a review from whatever platform you listen on that allows reviews. But if your platform does not, feel free to leave us that on social media as well. And for some reason, if you had something just really long and drawn out that you needed to say to us, or you wanted to present some counter evidence, or you found a really cool example of one of the things that we're talking about, you could always send it to us via email. We are firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you there. All right. Good news. Good news. All right. It is Women's History Month. It is Women's History Month. And uh, it was so funny when this started, I was I was trolling the socials and somebody was like, since when is March Women's History Month? And somebody else was like, since 1982, bro, like, (laughs) get it together. For a long time, Chad. So, yeah, it's Women's History Month and we are going to focus our good news segments this month on cool, awesome things that are happening for women. So today we're going to talk about real quick, uh, Chloe Zhao. Last Sunday, Chloe became the first woman of color and the and only the second woman ever to win the award for Best Director at the Golden Globe Awards. She won for her recent film, Nomadland, which you can watch on Hulu. Uh, it's about a woman who embarks on life as a modern-day nomad in the American West after losing everything in the Great Recession. Uh, interesting uh, thing about that movie is that it actually contains a lot of real nomads, mm-hmm. American nomads in it. And then there's also this like composite character at one point that is sort of like a, a bunch of nomads kind of mashed into one to play off of her. So it's this really cool blending of, uh, of reality and fiction. It's uh, realistic fiction. Ah, so good. Uh, also super cool. This was the first time in history that more than one woman was nominated in the best director category at all. Regina King a black woman and Emerald Fennel were also nominated. So very well stacked uh, nomination ticket. It makes me very happy to hear that um, and see it too. I think as a, as somebody who studied theater in my undergrad, 
I like seeing a more diverse representation in our story writers and storytellers because it is it, yeah. the difference of perspective is so critical to understanding what the experience of life is like. And that's really what theater and art is all about, sort of exploring what what is life for everybody. So that's super cool. Yeah. And, and the diversity of perspectives, um, not only in the individuals that were nominated, but what they were nominated for is also really cool. Uh, Regina King was nominated mm-hmm. for One Night in Miami, um, which is that kind of uh, historical what if bringing um, a lot of black figures together in the 1960s in a hypothetical um, hypothetical hotel room in Miami. And that would be so cool. I know. I That's on my list to watch. I, I just, need to watch that. I need to watch that. Yeah. Yeah. And I only just finished um, The People of the United States versus uh, Billie Holiday. So I just finished that one. But um, that one was on my list. And then Emerald Fennell was nominated for A Promising Young Woman. So um, there's a, a whole diverse perspective represented not only in the individuals but in the films that they were nominated for which is really cool that's so great i watched coming to america last night so oh was it good the 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 sequel yeah uh actually i really really enjoyed it i thought it was hilarious it's definitely takes place in a whole different era you know uh but i think they did a good job sort of you know translating that foreigner in a strange land and flipping the script on its head uh, for for what it was. So I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. There's also some incredible, whoever the costume designer was, whoever the makeup and hair designer was, oh, yeah. gets mad props. They did some phenomenal things in that movie. Super great. Strongly advise uh Strongly advise watching it just for fun. Um, so many big names in it. Matumbo has a cameo in oh, it. That's awesome. um, just just like in, just about anybody you can think of has a cameo in it. Morgan Freeman at one point. Uh, it's Trevor Noah. It's just ah, I don't know. It was very enjoyable. I uh, I think I think uh, watching Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall together at any point is yeah. just hilarious to begin with. So they did a, a very good thing with that movie as well. Um, a little different than the first. Uh, don't don't watch it expecting to see that that same magic, but it is very enjoyable on its own. And that is your now Fireside Breakdowns movie review. You're welcome. <laughs> Apparently, we're gonna we're gonna add that. <laughs> uh, we we will be back next week for another heaping helping of philosophical discussion and trying to muddle through some of the most complicated uh, topics in our society. So we hope to see you then. Thank you so much for listening and uh, everybody take care of each other.